On the morning of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is God's word. All right. You may be seated. If, uh, if anybody wants to send a kid back onto the kids' room, now is the time. And I just want to briefly remind you, yeah, we're in a, a series for the summer called Diverse Disciples. For the year, we're going through the book of Galatians. And we're doing this because these are things that we as, uh, as elders of the church thought through a while back and thought would be good for us this year in light of the kind of things that were brought to the surface in 2020. And so if you think about that, the, the year 2020, just, just quickly, um, I've, been, I've been thinking about this a little bit. And it's easy for me to look back at the, the year that we all had in the world, everybody in the world, and go, oh, what a, you know, what a lame year and what a terrible time and, and things of that nature. But there's another angle we can look at, uh, and that is one that says, wow, we sure learned a lot about ourselves um, through some of those experiences, and uh, how do we apply what we've learned? And so that's, that's what we're trying to do here, here at church is to apply what we've learned uh, especially in light of the gospel. So that's why, that's why we're going into these things and talking about these things. And uh, this week, we're on Thomas. So let's, uh, let's pray, and we'll jump in. Father in heaven, I want to, as always, thank you for these people, for your church. Uh, thank you for the church that's gathered in, uh, in so many other parts of our city and our country and our world, uh, many of whom are different than us, many of whom... Uh, don't always understand, uh, many of whom we have not even seen eye to eye with throughout the year. Somehow, mysteriously, though, for those who follow after you, Jesus, we have a unity that is centered and anchored in you, and I thank you for that. Um, that is not something that we could achieve. That is not something that the world, as we know it, is used to seeing, and so I pray that you would help us to become a light in our world uh, to show what it is like to follow you, to lean into each other, to offer grace, um, to offer your discipline appropriately, to love one another, uh, to truly 
lay down our lives and be those servant-type people that you told us we would be. Show us how to do that by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, many of you know that my, my dad died in 2017, and that's something I've talked about a lot, and, and I've shared with you all here at the church, and I've even went and wrote this kind of travel memoir um, about it and tried to connect with people like him. And in, in the book that I wrote, there's this, this chapter on faith, and if you've gone into that and, and read that book, you know that it's kind of a chapter on doubt, really, because that's, that's how you would characterize my dad in a way if, if you knew him, and I, I almost called it that. Um, I almost called the chapter doubt, but I realized um, that wasn't really, really what it was. After all, I took my dad on a hike through the Chiricahuas, um, and I didn't know how late we were in his life at the time. Uh, I didn't know that he had cancer at that time. And so, you know, quick aside: if you've got an idea with a friend or family member of like I'd like to do that with them, um, you should, <laughs> you know, make it happen because that's a I thought, I thought I had another 20 years or so. But I asked him some things, and one of the things I asked him was about his faith. Uh, I realized that was something that we hadn't talked really specifically about uh, too much in, in my life. It's something that, it was a big feature of our family's life, but I hadn't directly asked him about it. And so I, I asked him about his faith. I said, you know, is there anything you would tell me about your, your faith in God? And he said, he said essentially that there were, I can't remember exactly how he said it, but he said something to the effect of, you know, I've had a lot of doubts. And I was like, well, Dad, I just asked you about your faith, though. You know, <laughs> He's like, yeah, I've had a lot of questions. And you know, a lot of things, I don't know, doesn't really make sense to me all the time. And I said, so what keeps you believing? And he kind of thought about it. We're walking around. And he said, days like this. And that was it, you know, and, and I would have these, these experiences with my dad where I would feel like that's all we, that's it, that's the whole conversation, you know, and kind of frustration that would come with that. But at the same time, I was starting to learn that usually what he was offering was exactly what he had. He didn't, he's not like me. He didn't talk and talk and wax eloquent. He would say just what he had and he would give it. And what he was saying with that was, it's a beautiful day, I'm with my son, we're having a meaningful conversation. These are the kinds of things that make me believe there's something more and bigger uh, in this life. And so it wasn't what I expected. I, I was expecting I was going to go into this conversation. I was going to find out these substantive things of these big moments that he had or whatever and these you know, maybe roadblocks that he got past in his faith. And I learned that that wasn't really the thing that was keeping him believing. It wasn't some answer. It was these kind of seemingly small, meaningful experiences that he had along the way. So Thomas, the apostle that, that John read about just now, is of, co of course most well-known for the moment that John read about in which he expressed some doubt. And we've given him and a lot of other people this nickname, Doubting Thomas, for this, right? And you don't normally want to be a Doubting Thomas, right? If you're in faith circles and somebody calls you a Doubting Thomas, usually not ideal, not what you're really wanting to hear. Um, we don't know a whole lot about him. Um, as the text said, his name meant twin. It was Didymus or twin um, as well. And so there's that. Um, twins 
have an interesting relationship, usually. My mom's a twin, right? Are there any other twins in the room? Oh, Brandon and Andrew, I see you. They're on Zoom. Hi. See, we got a couple twins here. Um, But uh, for my mom, there's this incredible bond that she has that few understand with her twin, but also these deep-seated issues that arise. I mean, the conflict that they can have is, is pretty pretty enormous. There's, there's something about being very different than someone that appears to be exactly the same as you, especially identical twins, or appears to have had the exact same life experience as you, but you, ex- you don't feel like you had the, exa- the same exact life experience. You feel very different. There's, I, this isn't my experience, but it's what I've seen in some of the twins that I've known. It can be kind of complicated. And we, we, but we have honestly zero clue what Thomas's relationship being a twin was. But it's, it's in there. You can assume that shaped his life to some degree. The show The Chosen cast Thomas as the caterer for the wedding at Cana. That's an interesting thing that they did. Um, and they do that because a caterer, they were thinking, is usually pretty detail-oriented. You know, you got to have the garnish and all this stuff. And um, they, they kind of went into this idea that Thomas was kind of a math and data guy and I assume they'll factor that in someday in, as the, the Chosen goes on, to, that that's where his doubts come from, um, though the show isn't that far yet. But we, we don't know that any of that was, that, that's all speculative, that's art, that's them assuming and kind of just playing with some ideas. Um, we learn the most about him in the Gospel of John. Uh, he When they hear that Lazarus has died, he's the one that says, let us go that we may die with him. Uh, We see that in the Gospel of John. In uh, John 14, Jesus says he's going to prepare a place for them. And and he says, you know, what I think is a great question. Honestly, um, since we don't know how you're going, how do we find you? Basically, there's my paraphrase. You know, that's, any of us would ask that. You know, I don't know if Nick said to you, like, I'm preparing a place for you to live in. You'd go, would you let me know where that place is, please? (laughs) <laughs> so I can find it. Um, it's, it's, these aren't crazy expressions of doubt, but he, he shows up in the book of John in those ways, and he's listed in all the other Gospels too. Um, but truthfully, this big moment at the end of John is kind of the, his biggest moment, and I personally think it's probably a, a positive moment. Um, it's interesting to think that, and I, and I expanded the reading just a little bit because the part that John read to us at the beginning is Jesus comes to all the disciples, and what does he do? He shows them his scars. He shows them his side, right? And then they believe. It's, it kind of puts it in that order. He shows them his scars. He shows them his side. They believe. And then Thomas wasn't there, and they tell him that, you know, they've seen the Lord, and he says, unless I see the scars and the side, I, I will never believe. That's kind of just what Jesus gave to everybody else specifically, Right? And it's an interesting thing that we do. I, I didn't coach John on this at all. He read it the way almost any of us would have read it. Did you hear the inflection? Where it was, unless I see, you know, the scars, I will never believe. And there's, we don't really have a great reason for that inflection of the voice, right? I mean, it could have very easily have been, unless I see the scars, I will never believe, just that change, right? Completely recast the whole thing. This could have been a guy who, I mean, he doesn't have to have been defiant. If I don't see that, I'll never believe. It could have been just kind of, oh man, everybody else got to see that. I'm not, it's never going to click for me. I wish it would. We, we don't really, we don't really know. But probably what John is putting emphasis on is his confession. 
mean, there's a reason that the Apostle John gives a lot of space to this moment at the end of his gospel. And that he gives a lot of space to this. It probably wasn't that he was like, you know what I would like to do at the end of my gospel is take my buddy Thomas, who I wrote about a number of times more than any other uh, apostle, and throw him under the bus. That's very unlikely his point in bringing it up. It was probably to highlight his confession in which he says, my Lord and my God. And that's one of the strongest confessions of faith that we see in the New Testament. It's just, it's so, my Lord, my my ruler, my king, and my God. It's in a way finishing up what John started out, telling us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's him now defining exactly what that means in the words of his friend, Thomas, most likely. It's a strong expression of faith. Thomas is believed to have brought Christianity to India, and uh, there is to this day a group of Syrian Indian Christians who identify themselves as descendants of the community that he formed. They still call themselves the St. Thomas Christians. So the legacy that he left, and there's, there's some debate as to the other places he may have gone. He may have even gone to Indonesia. But there's the legacy that he left, people still have, have named themselves after him uh, specifically. There's a number of writings, clearly from a later era, that bear his name. And those likely don't prove any real data about what he taught. But, but here's an interesting thing that they do prove is that he was somebody of great interest that if you put his name on something, people were likely to read it. So that's interesting. I mean, he, his legacy is actually pretty strong. He was a person of great interest in the early church, and he's believed to have been martyred in, in uh, the year AD 72. So if he, even if he was once hesitant, um, his enduring legacy is more aligned with his confession that Jesus was his Lord and his God, and he lived and died accordingly, right? But we know him because of his statement, unless I see, I will believe. I will not believe. I'll never believe. So let's take this opportunity to talk about doubting disciples. I'm kind of saying, I don't know that Thomas doubted a whole lot more than the other ones, truthfully, but because he's been known for it, Um, let's talk about doubting disciples like Thomas and like all the disciples that fled when Jesus was arrested and crucified. And, you know, there's a lot of us, maybe all of them had their doubts. But I want to go into a few things tonight. Some of the sources of doubt that we deal with, addressing it, and then following Jesus with, with doubts of our own and with the doubts of others. Sources of doubt, addressing doubt, and following Jesus with doubt and doubters. I think, uh, I think doubt, in a way, comes from the outside and from the inside. And in a way, those are related, but in a way, they're different. If you think about the first doubt cast to us in the scriptures, it's, it's clearly in the garden. Um, and this one comes from, from outside. There's the devil tempts Eve by instilling doubt. Did God really say that? Um, you will surely die. Uh, uh, no, he, he knows your eyes will be opened. And see, there's this kind of twofold doubt that's instilled in that moment. There's kind of the, the light and initial attack, and then there's a the follow-up, which I would say is like the all-out assault uh, on them in this moment of temptation. The initial t- attack is, did God really say that? And that's kind of this idea of, um, are you sure? Are you, do, you, do you really understand? Did you read that right? Did you hear that right? It's kind of doubt in yourself. Maybe you don't get it. 
um, you misread it. And, and that can be valid, right? We know how many of us have misunderstood or misread somebody or something, right? That, so, so much evidence that we could do that, at least for me. And so that isn't the, the most unbelievable thing, but it, it's, a th- it's a thing. And we can apply that to our, our feelings about God and our understanding about God. Did I, maybe I missed something. Maybe I misread that. Maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. But the second is this assault on God. God isn't good. He isn't protecting you. He's holding out on you. He's withholding good from you. Um, and you'd be better off alone. He knows your eyes will be opened. He's withholding something from you. You're gonna be, you'd be like him if you had this. He just, he's withholding his status from you. He's kind of a selfish egomaniac. And that, that one's deep, right? Interestingly, neither of these doubts were aimed at God's existence. Um, you know, you might say, well, obviously, they walked around with God in a garden. But I don't think people need to doubt God's existence, and the enemy knows this. They can walk with God in the cool of the night, like Adam and Eve, and, and, this, and our enemy can still cast doubt on the goodness of God, which is why believers and very convinced believers also you know, do very trustless, faithless things that are evidence of doubt. I mean, why, why would you, when Jesus had said, you know, this is the kind of leaders you'll be, that you'll wash one another's feet, uh, why would you create armies and go out with swords and slaughter people uh, in light of that? Well, you don't believe that the washing feet thing would work, that God would actually take care of you if you did that, or that even if you lost your life, that it would be okay that he would carry you forward and that at the end of the day, the kingdom of God would come. You, you, you don't. And so, because that doesn't seem like it could possibly be true, you kind of go with the Peter way of taking up the sword that's condemned in the scriptures, and you do a faithless thing. And whole communities and nations did these things, right? Collaboratively, together, in the name of God, because they doubted that God would be good and carry through the promises that he had made. So, doubt can come from outside of ourselves. It can be a spiritual temptation and even people used you know, by the enemy to dissuade us, um, misrepresenting God, even Christians who are just doubting the goodness of God, right? And, and whole communities can get tangled up in that because one person's struggle can either tempt another to be disobedient or hurt another person, and it can just be this ripple uh, effect of doubt. So doubt can come from, uh, from the outside, but I, I think it can come in a way from the inside as well, because since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, these doubts have become embedded in us deeply. I just got an email from a lady in a, I'm in this missional community of practice, it's called, where, where we have this once a month meeting and we're, and we're learning stuff together. And the last one was on generational trauma. And uh, and one of the ladies sent back a bunch of the data from it, and it just reminded me of some of this, that uh, the way that you respond to events they figured out can be triggered by DNA markers that came from your grandparents. So what, what does that mean? That means that you, your response to something, you know, a loud noise, something like that, could be determined by your grandparents' experience, not even your own. Isn't that wild? But we see that kind of stuff happening Another one is, and this is like taking it even closer, which is even easier to believe, that the children of anxious parents are likely to be anxious themselves, right? And, it's, and now it's twofold. Now it's because you're actually taught this in, in your learned environment, in your home, in your formative environment, but also it's genetic. So the power of that experience is even, it's doubled. 
And our beliefs um, are, are impacted the same way. We're likely to believe things that our grandparents believed. And we're likely to disbelieve things that our parents disbelieved and our grandparents, right? So therefore, our tendencies to doubt are very much inherited. So doubt comes uh, at you from the outside, temptations, trauma, but sometimes it's there, it's inherited, and, it, and we're predisposed to it, really. Um, and it's kind of incredible how science often reinforces what the Bible has taught us. And I feel like I need to kind of recast this a little bit. But if you think about you know, things like things that you know, David said about, his, say, his sin with Bathsheba, behold, I was conceived in sin. And we tend to think about that just as, oh, like, he, you know, sin as like doing really horrible things. But I mean, what if, what if David was, was connecting this more? His sin wasn't just about the fact that he did something wrong, but that he doubted the goodness of God and didn't trust that God's ways were best. You know, why was David so lonely? Why did he feel the need to go to such great lengths to have this woman in his life? I mean, did he believe in the goodness of God? He must not have. Right? There must be, there, so it's all, it's all tangled in. And David's saying, I, I was born predisposed to such things. If, if that's true of some of the sins that can flow from doubt, it's probably true of doubt itself, which means this. It doesn't make doubt okay or good, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean it's always intentional. It doesn't mean it's always you out just not trusting Jesus enough. Sometimes it's just the way you were built in a way. It's in there, and, it, and it's a struggle, and it's not one you even signed up for. As I mentioned, the chosen cast Thomas as a detail guy, and they're therefore more predisposed to doubt. And that's a pretty 21st century kind of semi-postmodern reading of it. And that's okay. That's where we're at, that the chosen's talking to us or trying to, right? But there's, there's this idea after the Renaissance and rationalism that people want facts and answers to believe, and if you give them watertight arguments, they'll accept, right? And then there's some people are just very kind of detail-oriented, so they need tighter and better arguments than others. And that's one of the going ways to think about things. And the truth is we've discovered, and I think if we reflected now, we could see that it doesn't necessarily prove true all the time. That's not all there is to doubt. Um, people don't usually actually choose to love and believe, believe based on rational evidence alone. And that's not necessarily the most powerful thing. We're currently, if you think about it, in one of the most scientifically advanced eras and cultures, and a lot of people are simultaneously claiming to be very spiritual, though not religious. The things like tarot and astrology and spiritualism, even Satanism, is on the absolute rise, even here in Tucson. And these religions aren't growing because of how rational it all is. People are looking for more than data and facts. They're looking for meaning. They're looking for power. They're looking for experience, for connection, for community, for a sense of otherworldliness. Um, there's a place for rationalism. Facts have a role in people's lives, believe me, but that's just not all there is to the equation. It's not all that's there for people who feel they have moments of faith. It's not all that's there for people who have moments of doubt. So here, I'm going to give you four reasons I've actually heard from people in kind of midtown Tucson over the years of what caused them to have deep doubts, okay? Number one, our elderly neighbor, um, we went and helped him out with his bathroom. He's not able to come outside a lot. 
so you don't get a lot of conversations with the guy. But I learned when we were working on his bathroom and we were kind of able to come in, and some of you here at the church were there with us for that, um, that he had once wanted to be a, a minister, and he was pretty involved in the Baptist church. And um, he began to not be sure, because he had heard some things about the origin of the earth, and he wasn't too sure about the kind of seven-day creation thing that he'd heard in the Baptist church, if that aligned with reality. And he expressed that, and he, um, in, at least in his report, uh, had a very short timeline left at the church. They, they had him out of there pretty quick. He definitely wasn't going to be a minister and soon after, his wife was convinced that he wasn't a godly man and left him. And his experience from that was, was pretty detrimental. He had expressed being unsure about one thing. The whole faith seemed to have been taken away from him. And he said himself, he said, I believe the gospel, but I don't think I could ever trust those people again. And unfortunately, he lumped in us, right? Everybody. Uh, I sat next to a man one day at the Raging Sage, and I was preparing a sermon and had a book out. And as this happened a couple times, he goes, oh, what are you reading there? And, uh, and I told him I was a pastor preparing a sermon, and he recoiled. You could see his whole body kind of, you know. And, um, and I, and I, I kind of looked at him and smiled, and I said, I take it you're not a fan <laughs> or something. And he said, my sister... Was, was, has always been a terrible person, but when she became a Christian, it was worse because now nobody can give her any feedback because it's always Jesus forgave me, so she will never hear anybody's critique. Okay? And, and I told him that that would be really frustrating. His doubt is that the idea of grace is good, right? This idea of grace seems to have really messed up his relationship with his sister. My former neighbor was trying uh, religions, and, and he had been through a long life of kind of a cold Lutheranism. He'd tried Mormonism, and somewhere in there, he'd read this, the scripture of Jesus telling the apostles that they would do greater things than these, um, and, he, and he had described some supernatural things. And this guy, he grabbed onto that, and he was always trying to do powerful supernatural things as like a, as basically, a, he, and he didn't believe the basic ideas of the gospel from talking to him, but he, he told me that he would believe something when he saw people getting healed, and then he'd be up for it. That's when he would know that if the Bible said that, and if it doesn't happen, then he wouldn't believe. Um, and a fellow softball parent recently uh, had a conversation with, and, and basically he, uh, his dad always left churches because they could never find one that was quite like him, and he felt like his dad was actually a lot more like their secular neighbors and was kind of maybe not really that genuine in his faith. And so he said, I just don't know if it's for me, any of that stuff. But then he kind of came back around and said, but there have been some things I can't explain in my life, so I'm not ready to say there's no God either. Now, those are the four first stories I could think of. I really didn't try to filter them out. Do you see some themes? I mean, there, how many of those were rational arguments? Um, how many of them had to do with like a specific theological position, right? Like maybe the creation one. Um, but a lot of times just doubting that it works, doubting the way it's been taught, doubting that God is at work in these people because of the hypocrisy. Um, I, you know, I have heard rational arguments and many of those have, become, have come from kind of steeped Christians taking issues with aversion. 
of Christianity. Some, some even, you know, going a little further and saying, why is it that God would condemn good people? Why is it that good people get cancer and evil people succeed? And, and those are kind of the complaints of King David and Solomon, if you think about it. Um, sometimes those complaints are more struggling with a God you believe in, or you wouldn't be as upset. Uh, Madeline LaIngle, uh, author famous for a Wrinkle in Time, she was, there's an interview called Infinite Questions that she did, and, and she said, the second I'm furious with God, I'm totally close because you can't be furious with someone who's not there. And, and sometimes those are kind of the, those are the wrestling sessions of someone who indeed does have faith. It's almost the evidence of the faith. Elsewhere in her book, she works that out from another angle and because um, she talks about things like parenting. Why are we so angry at like fathers and mothers that fail us? Um, it's because they are our father and our mother. Um, that's why it's so infuriating. They're the parent we were given. They were supposed to do this. They exist, Right? Sometimes our doubts, even our anger, is because there's only one God and we can't see the goodness in his ways. It's almost the evidence of our faith that he is there, though it's also evidence that we are very frustrated about our experience. So doubt comes from the outside. I'm saying also it comes from the inside. It's not just about facts and experiences, um, or it's, it's not just about facts. It's also about experiences and longings and genuine frustrations that we can have. And by the way, they're whole psalms that are utter complaints. You can have frustrations. That's not wrong. Um, one of my favorite things to counsel people, several of you, if you've sat with me in, in a hard time, I've said, have you ever yelled at God before? And I, I mean it. I, I think many of us have felt we can't have that conversation with God, and so much of what we have boiling down within us is because we don't know we can yell and scream that he's big enough. He already knows how we feel. We can talk to him about that. That's okay. So how do we address it? I'm, I'm kind of already getting into that, aren't I? Um, if you always address doubt like a rationalist, you'll miss layers and, and many opportunities. There are moments for answering questions, but, but there's more. Um, and I mean to say this in the lives of others and in our own. The American church especially has been really known for apologetics, and, and that you know word, actually I, I like the word because it sounds like apologizing, but it usually doesn't come across as apologizing. It comes across as, as lecturing sometimes. But it's a good work. Apologetics is a good work. It's, you know, essentially dealing with rational questions, clearing up supposed inconsistencies and such. There's a place for it. There's a time for it. And Steve over here told me that was a part of his conversion, right? Um, but I'd like to suggest there are some other apologetic methods we should employ other than just answering questions. If somebody has a legitimate question, talk about it. That's great. But here's a couple other ideas. First, um, this one is, is similar, but a little bit different. Can still be academic, but is different. And that's getting at the presuppositions, the big ideas underneath beliefs. Um, a lot of these for, folk, for folks lay unexamined. A lot of us, um, for us, they lay unexamined. And that is like, what are the basic and core principles upon which you've built your other beliefs? Um, that can be a very academic conversation, but it can also lead you to ask really great questions, such as, what is it that I base my, my meaning and value upon? Um, you could ask that to somebody, you know? What, um, what could provide that meaning? What would be big enough and complex enough and true enough to provide that meaning? Um, could a God of my own making truly be a God? Those are 
questions you could ask. Um, if I begin to connect with a non-rational force, can it really speak to a rational being like me? Can a moral God correct me, or am I simply looking for a God that will correct others? What does it mean to have a God that is morally superior to all of us? What's that mean for individuals? What does that mean for society? Those are big, those are big but they get at these core undergirding ideas. I think we often we talk about the, the tip of the iceberg issue, and we don't talk about the undergirding beliefs, and, and we should do more of that, okay? That is still, though, in a way, very academic. But then there's what you could call relational apologetics, and this is where we try to walk as Jesus walked. And this one's really sticky, because if you do this to be good enough um, to prove yourself, you're gonna, it's going to have the opposite effect. Um, but if you are trying to love God and exhibit and share God with others, especially in keeping with ideas like the fruit of the Spirit and the marks of love in 1 Corinthians, this can be really powerful. Um, the trouble here, is, of course, is that nobody can live up to it, and nobody is good enough. So in relational apologetics, some of the key foundational principles are those like repentance. Like, if I have hurt you, I will actually acknowledge it, hear you, and try to go the other way. Like that, that right there is probably one of our most powerful tools, right? Um, that's what the guy at Raging Sage didn't experience. Um, he has a sister demanding acceptance um, without repentance, right? And so he's not experiencing somebody who goes, how did I impact you? What could I do? I mean, this is kind of what Jesus said to Zacchaeus. I think that's a really good model. You know, Zacchaeus tax collector. He had defrauded many people, and Jesus says, go and pay him back, right? And, and then the, the thing that I think is the key here is that Zacchaeus is willing to do that, but then he invites his friends to come and meet Jesus. Do you see the key difference here? Zacchaeus doesn't say, look, I've curated a new lifestyle. I've come up with a new way of paying people back and becoming a good person. No, he doesn't. He changes and then just says, meet Jesus, the one who changed me. That's really important because we fail. I fail. Look, there, there are people here, and I always say this, and if you haven't experienced this, you will if you get to know me. Like, it's going to be really disappointing someday in our relationship. I mean, have, some of you have heard me say this, but I'm dead serious. I am not the case for Christianity. Um, I have blind spots. I have areas in which I think I see clearly and um, and I'm probably off. There are times I'm just wrong. There are times I'm right and I don't know how to handle it. There are times I'm stressed and I go inward. There's all kinds of, of stuff. And guess what? And I know this is going to be hard to believe, but you guys all have that stuff too. So what chance do we have putting us all in the same room following Jesus together? Whew. Well, that's what it's like to be a disciple. That was the 12 disciples of Jesus, a bunch of people failing behind Jesus. Maybe that should be the new tagline of the church. A bunch of people failing behind Jesus. Because um, that's true. That's the truth. Um, and not only will I fail to prove Christianity, but I have my doubts. Um, this past year, one that's just eaten me up, and I've shared this with our elders, but not with uh, as many of you. But when I've seen you know, people in our church get, get like at each other's throat or divided from one another over the past year, one of the biggest things I dealt with was I thought that the Holy Spirit's work in us would have gotten us further than this. And I start to, and I've wondered, is God really even at work 
in this stuff? Like, is, are people changing here? I, that's, I've struggled with that. That's been tough for me. I have seen God work in amazing ways. I've seen some of the, the difficult stuff that our church has faced actually bring up really beautiful conversations, some that I didn't want to have and still don't. Um, but I've seen, I've been able to see as time has gone by some of the reasons for those things, but not all of it. And sometimes I think, you know, when Job, at the end of the book of Job, is he, he's cast as a faithful person, but he does express some doubts and frustrations. And God does this crazy thing where he just displays his power and glory, shows him like ocean beasts and wonders of the universe and like a crazy vision. And basically the idea is, he just says, can you make these things? Can you command these things? Do you tell these things where to go and how to operate? And Job is sitting there going, no, no, no. And God, you know, essentially the message at the end of it is like, so you're not God, right, Job? And Job goes, yeah, end of discussion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, sometimes that's, I've felt like that. Um, I've seen beautiful things. I, guys, I had a conversation with a kid recently, and, and I don't know, I call him a kid, he's in his 20s. I met him when he was five years old, first person I put a ton of time into in, like, in ministry. And imagine, if you think I'm a mess now as a pastor, imagine me trying to do this at age 15. That's how old I was, trying to lead somebody spiritually. Whew, that was, I'm sure, who even knows what kind of mistakes I was making back then. But I, I prayed for this kid. I met with this kid. He, a bunch of things went wrong in life. We completely lost contact, felt like it was all over. What, week and a half, two weeks ago, I, I meet him at a coffee shop. I had a dream about him. You guys know I don't do a lot of that. Um, and anyway, it all like crazy stuff. I'm with him in a coffee shop. He's confessing sins from 10 years ago that he's like, I needed to do this. And he says, I think... He remembered a camp he went to with me at the Salvation Army, which was like theologically pretty messy. And he was like, they said I needed to follow Jesus. I needed to decide. And I knew I wasn't ready. And I think I want to now. And I'm sitting there in this coffee shop going, Did, is this really happening right now? 12 years later, I didn't even see this kid for nearly a decade. Maybe God's actually at work. Maybe it just takes a while. So, I'm figuring this out with you guys. I have my doubts. I have my moments of seeing God's faithfulness. We're all there. So how do we walk with each other in these doubts? Uh, we're, we're all going to have I just, just a few things. Um, I think we need to see kind of like that Madeline Lingle quote was saying that doubt's a feature of faith and just and lean into it. Be honest about it. Um, she had this other in the same interview. She said, the value of doubt is it keeps you open to God's revelations. If you don't have doubts, you'll never change. If you think you have um, finite answers to infinite questions, you're never going to change. I thought that was a really good point. I think she's onto something. Doubts are, you're basically admitting you're not God and you're not sure about everything. That's a great thing to own. That's, that's good because Christians are supposed to be changing and growing and being conformed to the image of Christ. They're supposed to be sanctified, which means they're supposed to change into further holiness you can't do that if you ever decide that you're done and you're sure and you've got it all figured out. Um, repentance means, you know, turning around and changing. And it's not just something you do at the beginning of your Christian journey. It's something you do the whole way. So I guess I would just say, expect your own doubts. Expect the doubts of others. Don't be shocked. 
these are times in which God is at work. Um, one of the best gifts that I feel like God's given me, for whatever reason, and maybe it's because of growing up with my father, when people express doubts, I'm pretty comfortable. And, and I'm grateful for that. And I'd just like to share with you that that actually is fairly, it's pretty powerful. When somebody knows they can tell you about a deep doubt and they're safe. So like, and if, you, if that doesn't come naturally, that's okay. But that, that's a gift. I remember a student I worked with would tell me these honestly kind of horrendous things that he was thinking. And one time his mom came to me and she said, thank you so much because he terrifies people. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you, because he knows he can tell you, and he has to tell somebody. So expect doubt and stumbling, and, um, and allow, allow people to be there, right? Um, number two is don't let doubt stop you from engaging with God. Let it push you further into it. I think that that's what it's for. I think the enemy's best angle is to get you to think you're the only one that doubts. Nobody's going to like you if you doubt um, so just to check out, or that you can come back into relationship with God and other people once you get your, your doubts figured out, that is a good way to distance you and destroy you. I mean, when the, you know, the apostle Peter says, you know, look out, the enemy is, is following after you like a roaring lion, seeking whom they may devour. I've told you about, you watch the nature shows and you figure out how lions devour things. They separate the weak ones off, right? And that's how they do it. Um, there's something to that. Like, if you're struggling, stay, stay with people. Keep pursuing God. Don't, don't just go, well, I'll come back when I'm better. I don't, I don't think that's going to be good for you. And that's just not a good pattern for any of your, of your troubles in life. Um, I watched my dad regularly read his Bible and pray his, his short little prayers, um, and he never wavered in attending church. And, and here's a little secret, too. Uh, I've talked about this with some of you all, but we did not we did not ever go to the church that was just all our people. We were kind of small town working class union. My dad was in the union, um, and we were in wealthier and conservative churches, often that were kind of prosperity oriented. So we often did not fit at church. So if any of you have ever felt like I don't fit at church, like I know that how that goes. I I literally grew up never fitting in one my whole life and watched my parents choose to keep engaging with it, and it was a gift. It was an absolute gift. It was one of the best lessons I learned from my family was don't let your doubts or your differences alienate you from the body of Christ. Um, It really isn't worth it. And my dad, up until the end of his life, the last year of his life, he and I had a conversation about views of the end times, and he said, well, if you have any good books about the views you're talking about, let me know and I'll read one. And I gave one to him, and, and when I was cleaning up his stuff after his death, he, he'd gotten all the way through it. So up until the end of his life, willing to reconsider. Like, that's a gift I got. Can I offer it to you? Um, expect doubt. It's part of faith. Don't let doubt rule your life. Bring your doubt with you to church and with your friends. Just bring it along. Just take that, I've got doubt. It's coming with me. Okay? Acknowledge it and, uh, and keep moving. Um, And lastly, and most importantly, remember that Jesus is full of grace. The most incredible thing about John 20 is is that when, right, when Thomas says, unless I see, I'll never believe. And as I mentioned, I don't know if it was defiant or sad, but whatever the case, Jesus provided what he asked for, right? And Jesus has told us things like, ask and you'll receive, seek and you will find. The context in which he said that was, 
was where he said, look, a father's not going to withhold from his children when they ask for something good from him. God wants to give you the good things that you ask for, so seek, and you'll find. Ask, and he'll give it to you. And faith is one of those good things. He's very much in the business of giving it. In Mark 9, a man brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus because the disciples weren't able to help him. And they were confused about why they couldn't, and and they asked Jesus uh, why later, but the the father came to Jesus and asked if he could heal him, and, and Jesus said, anything is possible for those who believe. And the man said, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus healed the boy. Now, we have to see and believe and know that Jesus didn't just say all that for that guy. He was saying it for his disciples who were watching him. Because then the disciples came to him and said, How, why couldn't we do this? And he said, these kind only come out by prayer. And you go, oh, okay, what kind of prayer do I have to pray? We just saw it in the Father. The Father, when he said, help my unbelief, that was his prayer. He was talking to Jesus, asking for his help. And when Jesus arrived, everything changed, right? Jesus healed the boy, but as always, he gave more. He gave this father and his disciples more faith. He was giving to them what they needed. He was teaching them, the prayer that you pray is help, help me. (laughs) I'm trying to believe, I'm trying, help me. He will always answer. Maybe not right this second but he's the kind of father that will not withhold good gifts. So here's the most important thing to know. It's not the quality of our faith or the strength of our faith that's most important. It's the object of our faith. It's Jesus. If you're weak and weary, angry and afraid, just pray to him, help help me. He is the one that makes your faith strong. He is the one that overcomes your doubts himself. And sometimes he's, gonna, he's just going to show you his glory and not solve your problem like Job. And sometimes he'll step in and do the healing. But reach out to him. Make him the anchor of your soul. Because um, he always does give the gift that we need, the good gift that we ask for. So that's why we approach him at his table where he offers us himself, right? We as the church, we've been left with this practice the practice isn't come to me, the pastor who will give you answers. I've told you, I've got, a, you know, I've got a few, I've got a lot of doubts, and I make a lot of mistakes. That's me. Allow me to bring you to the table with me to Jesus. Um, Jesus is the only one who is utterly faithful. Jesus, even in the garden, expressed his frustrations with the plan of God. Is there any other way? <laughs> um, is there any way you could take this cup from me and we could do this some other way? But nevertheless, your will be done. He's the one that even in the moment of his deepest frustration was able to say to God, I'll follow you wherever you call me to go. He did that for us. Um, He did that in our place, and he did that to wash away our sins. He, He did that so that we can anchor our hope in him, and so that when we look at him on the cross, uh, we can say that prayer, help. And his arms are wide open, and he says yes every single time. When his disciples were gathered with him, when they were about to see him betrayed, uh, when they were about to see him go to the cross, uh, he took the bread that was at the table and he broke it and he declared to them what they didn't yet understand. Um, And he said, this is my body broken for you. Every time time you eat this, remember me. Um, And he took took the cup and this is wine. It's a a symbol of, of sometimes judgment, 
um, that was about to pour upon him. But sometimes this is, this is what he turned into, uh, into wine at the wedding at Cana. You know, he turned, turned water into wine, and, and it's a celebratory thing. It's what he said, you know, I will drink this anew with you one day in my kingdom. It's, it's a promise of good things to come. Uh, and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. And every time you drink of it, you're to remember him and declare his return. And so when you come to him, you're placing your hope in the one who says, I will come back and I will indeed answer your prayer. And you will indeed see things the way that they're supposed to be. So um, we are going to do a few things together now. We're going we're gonna to sing together. Uh, we have giving in the back as we always do. And we're going to take the Lord's Supper after we have a time of confession. So we're going to, just for a moment, we're going to sit in these ideas, and and really all the guidance I have is just to go to Jesus and say, help my unbelief. And if he brings up anything specific, then then lift it to him. Um, But just sit there with him and be open uh, to his help. So two minutes of silence with Jesus, and then uh, Mike will bring us back uh, with a song, and I will be serving to you from the Lord's table. So let's just come before him and ask him for the help that he loves to give.